our Bible reading this morning is from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, <clears throat> beginning at verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. <clears throat> then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Let us pray. Lord, as we come to your word, by your Holy Spirit, would you open your scriptures up to us, open us up to your living word, that, Lord, as we, as we humbly wait upon you for your inspiration and your word into our lives, we would have ears that are open and willing to hear and hearts that are soft and ready to respond. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. When uh, Paul uh, invited me to come and uh, open God's Word with you this morning, he mentioned the series that you're on, this uh, Discovering Jesus, or Rediscovering Jesus, as it probably is for, for many of us. Uh, and then after, that's leading up to Easter, I think, isn't it? And then after Easter, it's encountering or re-encountering the church. So discovering, rediscovering Jesus, and I thought that's a lovely uh, way to spend Lent in our approach to Easter, because actually, if, if you're like me, it's not that I kind of, uh, in, in a way, it's not that I think I'm going to discover something new, but it perhaps has become uh, rather stale for me. That would be my experience. It can so easily, you know, the, uh, my knowledge of Jesus uh, over the years can so easily just become uh, uh, routine and so on. And actually having an opportunity to look afresh at some of these, uh, these aspects of Jesus' life, particularly in the run-up to uh, the passion and the crucifixion and the resurrection, 
is really good for us to do. And so I pray that uh, as we look at uh, today's passage uh, from Matthew, that we would, yeah, we would just allow the Spirit to refresh our understanding of Jesus, the real Jesus, the real person, uh, that it might come off the, the, the pages of the Bible and really we encounter him personally again in our hearts. So that's my prayer uh, for this morning. And uh, we're, our, our passage, we find ourselves in the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the, the Last Supper is finished and Jesus has gone there with his disciples and so the passage and the prayer that we're looking at really is uh, a reminder of Jesus in a very vulnerable time in his life, a very vulnerable moment. And uh, just to refresh our memory and to see what can we learn about um, how we react when we feel vulnerable in these tough times. And so we've given the title of this, When Life Gets Tough. So we're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, I wonder if, uh, you've, if you know what Gethsemane means. Some of you may do. Um, I wonder if any of you have been to the Garden of Gethsemane. It is, a, it is an amazing place. I've been a couple of times. Uh, well, Gethsemane, as, as a word, the, the garden itself was named after an olive press because the name is broken down into two words, gath, which means press, and shemen, which means oil, and so we get the name Gethsemane, which means oil press or olive press. Now, the garden itself that uh, we find Jesus and disciples in at this time is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. So, uh, we've got a quick map just so you can see the location. Perhaps you can just pop that up for us. There we go. So, um, on east of Jerusalem itself, you've got the Mount of Olives, and down in just above the Kidron Valley there, you've got the Garden of Gethsemane. And then this next image um, I, I've, I found in the, uh, um, in the um, Atlas of the Bible. This is an olive press. I thought it would be quite helpful for us just to know what an olive press would be like in those sorts of days. And uh, as you can see, um, we've got... Um, well, the olives would be brought to this place, um, and then there was a, a millstone would be used initially to, to crack the olives and to begin to break them down. And then they would gather the, the broken bits, what they called the mash, and they would put them into those baskets. Can you see them there underneath? And they would fill those baskets, and then they'd stack them up there, sort of at the back of the picture a little bit. You see the baskets full of the olive mash stacked up, then there's a big heavy stone goes on top, the wooden bar, and they would put as many stone weights as they could. And the pressure of that weight sitting upon those baskets of broken olives would cause the oil to begin to just seep under pressure out of the sides of the baskets and run down that stack. And then um, you, they, it would be caught in a little um, place at the bottom and run down into the hole, and then they'd gather it out. And apparently, the, in that early stage of the, of the pressing, it will be quite brown and red, this um, oil, as it came out. 
before it was kind of refined a little bit. And it seems to me that Gethsemane uh, is just pictorially a, a wonderful, wonderful kind of, of reminder to us of what was actually happening to Jesus there in the garden. It's a picture, perhaps, of for him as a person, uh, uh, what it felt like to have the weight of what he was facing, and Jesus knew what was coming. He knew this cup of suffering, as he referred to it, that was coming to face him. This was the night, of course, that Jesus was betrayed and was about to be arrested um, and tried and then crucified the following day. He knew what he was facing. And uh, in Luke's version, Luke the doctor says that uh, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. This is uh, talking about Jesus. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. There's a doctor's view of what this weight of responsibility and the anguish that it caused was causing in Jesus um, as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that similarity to the crushing weight of the uh, olives being pressed just as a sort of a, a pictorial, almost like a metaphor for what was going on in Jesus, an image of Jesus's anguish. So I kind of want you to hold that. Thank you for taking that picture. I want you to hold that image in your mind as we think about Jesus facing this difficult time, this tough uh, time ahead. The other thing I want us to think about is the fact that he was in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane, the garden of the olive press. Because gardens actually are very significant um, places in, in Scripture as a whole. Of course, gardens, perhaps in a, in, in a desert country, a country that can, is so much of the time very dry and very arid, gardens, of course, would be really treasured. It's not surprising that Jesus uh, went often, Luke tells us, or as usual, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Whenever he was there, he would go there to pray. This was a special place for him. As I say, I've, I've been a couple of times to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of, of Olives, and they say that some of those olive trees in the garden grow to such an age that some of them could very well be, even today, the same olive trees that were there when Jesus was in anguish in the garden. That's mind-boggling, isn't it? That's mind-boggling. But it is a beautiful place. It's, of course, a, a place of trees. It's shaded from the hot sun, stunningly beautiful and tranquil. I'm not surprised that Jesus went there regularly and took his disciples. So this is a place of retreat for him. And he goes to that place at his time of greatest need. But the significance of a garden is really great when we think about the whole of the salvation story that is in our Scripture Bible, in our Bibles. When you think about it, right at the beginning of Scripture, at the beginning of the narrative, we have the Garden of Eden, don't we? 
And it was in the Garden of Eden that God would walk in the cool of the day, we're told, with Adam and Eve. It was a place, it was a paradise. Um, and Adam and Eve were uh, given the task of, of working the garden, of looking after it. And this picture of the Garden of Eden was of a wonderful um, relationship of, of God with His beloved people. And, of course, we know, don't we, that the Garden of Eden also represented, as well as uh, this paradise, this perfection, this heaven on earth, but it also contained with it temptation. And we know, don't we, that Adam and Eve gave in to temptation and sinned, and, of course, therefore had to be cast out of the garden. And paradise was lost. And so you've got this garden image, metaphor, right at the beginning of Scripture. And sin becomes the barrier between mankind and God, our Heavenly Father. And then you go to the end of Scripture, and you have what's called the New Jerusalem. But when you look at the description, actually it's very similar to a restoration of the Garden of Eden. You've got the river of life flowing through the New Jerusalem. You've got the tree of life back again because, of course, one of the, the um, consequences of sin from the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. No longer did they have access to the tree of life and eternal life. But come the end of Scripture, the salvation story, we have that restored in the New Jerusalem, the, the garden of paradise, and the river is flowing through. The tree of life is once again available to those who have uh, um, come to faith through Jesus Christ and given their lives to God. And this paradise that awaits us is seen in that same sort of picture. And the trees that line the river the garden, the paradise is restored. But the garden of Gethsemane sits bang in the middle as kind of the, the fulcrum, we could say. In order to put right what was ruined in the garden of Eden and make possible the new Jerusalem, what went on in the garden of Gethsemane was critical. And Jesus knew this. Jesus knew that he had come to put things right, to restore relationship by taking upon himself our sin. To take upon himself the sin of the world, all that had become a barrier between us and God. Jesus had come to take all of that upon himself and to carry it on the cross for us. So you see, what was going on in the Garden of Gethsemane for Jesus was not just fear of the physical um, beating and, and punishment and crucifixion, as bad as that was going to be over the following uh, day. But actually, what Jesus knew was he was taking, going to be taking the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And so he was, to put it in the words of Isaiah, 
Isaiah the prophet has said, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was, and this is the word that the uh, NIV uses, he was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace, that word is the, in the Hebrew is shalom, which means wholeness, restoration. So what would make us whole would only be possible through the crushing of Jesus. This is what's going on in our passage in the Garden of Gethsemane. The weight of the sin of the world is going to be upon him. No wonder he cries out, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, of course, we may say, well, yes, but he, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus was able to, to carry that kind of responsibility. Only Jesus could do that, and we, we say, yeah, absolutely, yes. But I wonder if we sometimes forget his humanity and look at him purely as the Son of God, and somehow um, play down this crushing um, experience that he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we do well to remember that, yes, he was fully divine, but actually when Jesus came as God incarnate, as God in flesh, God with us, Emmanuel, we're told by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians as he was trying to explain this dynamic of him being God and yet man. We read these words, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He made himself nothing. When Jesus uh, was born as God incarnate, the New Living Translation puts it like this, he gave up his divine privileges so the Jesus we see in the Garden of Gethsemane has given up his divine privileges. He is a man carrying the weight of the sin of the world for you and me, emptied of any divine advantage at that point. And he's being crushed for you and for me. And at his most vulnerable, what do we see in Jesus' response to that experience that we might perhaps learn from. Well, the first thing, there are four things I want us just to hold in our minds of Jesus' response to that crushing experience. The first one was he prayed. 
He'd been there to pray. He'd, he went regularly to pray, whether it was there or up the mountain or wherever. He would regularly take himself off. For Jesus, his connection with his Father was of key importance. Prayer was his first resort, not his last resort. It was his life's pattern that he prioritized being with his Father so that he would know the will of the Father. Prayer was Jesus's go-to place. And it was only because of that that he could know for sure and be guaranteed what he needed to do and how he would get through this crushing experience. As we read in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 30, this is the New Living Translation, Jesus' own words, I can do nothing, he said, on my own. This is the Son of God. And yet he says, I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. So you see, Jesus has emptied himself of all divine advantage, and therefore he knew he needed to, how can I put it in a kind of modern way, plug in regularly in that relationship with his father, and prayer was how he did it. That was how he was guided, how he was led, how he was restored and recharged and given everything he needed as a man to carry out the will of the Father. So the first thing we see is that for him prayer was of key importance. The second thing, that in his praying he was honest with his Father about his feelings. In verse 38, we read him saying in his prayer, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And the next verse, my father, he says, if it is possible, may this cup of suffering be taken from me. Even though Jesus knew exactly what he was born to do, what he needed to do, what the will of the father was, and what he was going to encounter over that next 24 hours, and how he would be abandoned and separated from the Father. He still asks, Father, if it's possible, spare me this. There's real honesty, isn't there? So, he, prayer was his go-to place. It was his default mode. It was his connection with his Father. But in the way he prayed, he was honest with the Father about his struggle and if we look at the Psalms, we see so many honest prayers, don't we? We see David, uh, uh, who wrote some of those, many of those Psalms, being really honest with God about how he's feeling, about what he's experiencing. It seems to me that Jesus had that same sense of openness and honesty because he had that kind of relationship with the Father where he could just speak out what was on his heart. The third thing we see 
is that he acknowledged his need of friends. He'd taken the disciples there, and he'd left them, but he'd taken three of them in particular, his closest friends, and said, come and uh, keep watch with me, he said. Stay here. That was Peter, James, and John. We know that he, that yes, they were his disciples, but we know that they were also his friends. John 15, verse 15, he said, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. This was the relationship that Jesus and the disciples had. And we see here, actually, in, D, in Jesus' vulnerability, he is acknowledging his need of his friends to pray with him, to watch and pray and be alert, to encourage him and be present at his most vulnerable time. And then the fourth thing we see is he resists temptation. He's faced with temptation, but he resists it. Because even though he's been honest and said, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, he knows that he must ultimately get to that point of saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. Because he knew his purpose was to do the will of the Father, however that impacted him. It's interesting to see that Jesus' life and ministry is bookended, or his ministry certainly is bookended by temptation. Jesus was tempted, but without sin. We're all tempted, and so Jesus knows what it is to face temptation. He was tempted at the beginning of his, his ministry when he was baptized and he was taken into the wilderness and he faced temptation. But because he had that relationship founded in prayer and honesty and the support of his friends, he was able to resist. And now at the end of his ministry, he's faced yet again with the ultimate, perhaps, temptation to find a way of avoiding the suffering that he was going to go through. But he knew that because salvation required his crucifixion, his paying the price for us, he knew he needed to pray, but not my will, but yours be done. So that's Jesus a very real experience, anguish weighing on him so much that he sweat tears and, of blood. What can we learn from that? Well, firstly, I want to ask, I wonder what your Gethsemane, I know it, it doesn't compare, but perhaps each and every one of us have some sort of some form of Gethsemane experience that we are in at the moment. I wonder if you have, are facing uh, a very difficult decision that you feel you have to make. Or perhaps at the moment you're facing an outcome, an experience that is really weighing heavily upon you and you don't know which way to turn. Then I believe when life gets tough, we can and should be able to look to Jesus and learn from how he 
coped and responded at that time. And I think those same four things are, are lessons that we can learn for in our times, our Gethsemane anguish. So, how is your prayer life, I guess, would be a question that this passage raises. It certainly does for me. How is my prayer life? Is, is it my go-to place? Is it my priority? Do I make it the, the first thing I do out of which everything else then can be resourced and fly? Have I got as a priority developing and growing my relationship with my Heavenly Father so that I can get a real sense of what His will is for me? How to make that difficult decision? How to navigate this particular tough uh, path that I am on, that you are on? So it raises a question, doesn't it, about uh, that prayerful relationship with the Heavenly Father. This isn't meant in any way to be condemnatory. This is an encouragement. You see, I think it's a privilege that we have prayer. We have the freedom to pray. We have that direct line with the Father, Almighty God. Which brings me to the second one about being honest with Him. That when we do pray, when we do share our heart, how honest are we with Him? You see, I think sometimes we uh, think it, you know, it would offend God somehow if we said how we really felt. But of course, if we have the kind of uh, relationship prayerfully that Jesus had, then we would know that the Father knows exactly how we're feeling. He wants us to express that truly with him, to be real with him. So the importance of prayer to get through our tough times, the importance of honesty would be the second thing. The third thing is, of course, the importance of friends. Having friends, good friends that we know we can share these things with, and being good friends to others that we feel that we've built relationship with them, where if they are going through a tough time, we would hope that they could come to us and be real and honest with us, knowing that we would pray with them. We would stay with them, be alert with them, and watch with them, and be present with them in their tough time. And that through those three things, that commitment, priority in prayer, that honesty with God, that developing good friendships and being good friends to others, we would then be in a place where we would be able to resist the temptation to take an, an easy option to avoid the thing that God wants us to do, to take a different path. I just want to finish really with a moment of quietness and then I'm going to pray for you. Let's just bow our heads and perhaps hold in our mind before God 
a particular tough situation that perhaps we are in or that we see looming ahead of us. It feels like a great big wall in front of us that we just don't see any way through. Let's hold that situation, that tough experience before God. Maybe it's not ours, but someone we know and love that is going through this. Perhaps we hold it for them and hold them in our prayers this morning. And as we hold that situation, we pray. Lord, thank you that we are able to bring these things before you in prayer. Thank you that you are a God who is not remote, but a God who is with us by your Holy Spirit. That you've given us that precious gift of prayer just to speak out honestly our experience and to seek your will, to seek your strength, to seek your resources. But Lord, when we feel the crushing weight of what we're experiencing, thank you that you are our sustaining power. Help us to be good and faithful friends to one another, to help one another in these times of need. And Lord, help us to hear your word of comfort, your word of direction, and through your Spirit, give us all that we need to get through this particular experience. And that as you lead us and as we follow, help us to resist the temptation to take an easy option, but to follow where you're leading so that you might have the glory. And we pray, Lord, that through whatever we're going through, we would hold on to your promise that you work all things together for good when we are and put our trust in Christ Jesus. So we offer ourselves and all that we face to you and put our trust in your ability to lead us on. In Jesus' name.